This time on Pole Hub, the third in a series of special episodes on 1968, the year that rocked American politics. It's the 50th anniversary of that hugely consequential year, and our focus this time is on the Vietnam War. By the beginning of 1968, the war was entering its third year, and the American public was being told there was light at the end of the tunnel. But then came the Tet Offensive, and that changed everything. As it turns out, not only for America, but for the North and South Vietnamese as well. We talked with documentary filmmaker Lynn Novick, who, along with Ken Burns, made the epic 18-hour Vietnam War that aired on PBS late last year. Let's get started. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll. This spring, at the Marist College campus here in Poughkeepsie, New York, we've been holding a series of discussions with notable thinkers about 1968. We've talked about the war, civil rights, political upheaval, not only about what it was like then, but how it relates to our current political climate. And our third guest was Lynn Novick, who recently completed the stunning 18-hour documentary, The Vietnam War, with her production partner, Ken Burns, for PBS. It's the latest in a string of genre-defining work that includes, among others, the Civil War, jazz, baseball, and Prohibition. Our discussion took place in the Hancock Center here at Marist in front of a live audience that included students, alumni, faculty, and staff. The regular Pole Hub crew, Lee Marengoff, Barbara Carvalho, and I led the discussion, and here's a portion of that conversation. 1968, such a pivotal year, obviously, for, for, for what we are studying uh, and as well for the country and five decades ago. Uh, with Vietnam, um, it's really barely halfway of the time of our major involvement, if you start that at 65, um, and then what happens after. So how do you feel that 68 was so pivotal uh, for Vietnam and, and for the, the project that you did? You know, when we started on the film, it was in the year 2007, we decided to make this film, and it took us 10 years to do it. And um, we didn't know how exactly how many episodes the series would be or exactly what we would delve into in most detail, and 68 was so important. We ended up devoting two episodes to it out of our 10 episodes. So I think that tells you right there, there was so much that happened in that one year that it is kind of the fulcrum for our entire series, and obviously the fulcrum for this period. And um, I, I think it's the time when a lot of things come to a head, and everything that happens before leads up to it, and everything that happens after follows from mm -hmm. it. So, so that seems very clear. When, I, you know, when we were working on the film, we originally were going to be broadcast in 2016, and we weren't quite ready, and the film had expanded a bit, partly because we had made the effort to include Vietnamese perspectives, and that took a bit longer and sort of gave us much richer material to work with. So we ended up delaying to 2017, which is when the year that our film was broadcast. And people would ask us, well, you know, is it some anniversary? What's the anniversary of? And people were sort of saying it's the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War, which is kind of weird, because 1967 isn't the anniversary of anything. But mm -hmm. as soon as the film was broadcast, we started thinking, this is going to sound crazy, but it really didn't focus on the fact that it was going to be 2018 which was the 50th anniversary of 68, which is an incredibly important mm. time to commemorate. Mm. So I'm really glad that our film came out just before mm. and gave us all a chance to kind of reflect on the meaning of the war in this moment right now. Yeah. And when you think of 68, what, do you, what, what jumps out wow. as the, obviously you know, Ted is the, the... Right, so it starts off with the Ted Offensive, and um, that is a turning point of the Vietnam War and of the public opinion 
around it. And I think what I hadn't been quite so clear on was the fact that one of the reasons why the Tet Offensive was so shocking to the American public and to our leaders was because in the six months leading up to it, the Johnson administration had been reassuring the public. They had something called a success offensive. And they were trying to explain that the war was going so well, the light was at the end of the tunnel, it was almost over. You know, things were going really well. We had reached the crossover point. We were killing more people than the enemy could replace. And basically, after this long war, it was almost mm -hmm. over. I mean, there wasn't really a timeline given. Mm -hmm. And at one point, there's a piece of footage we have in the film where Ambassador um, Bunker is being, he's saying, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And the news anchor says, well, Ambassador, how long is that tunnel? <laughs> and he sort of says, well, I, you know, you really can't put a timeline on. So they didn't have an exact moment, but definitely the message was, we're almost there. And then the Tet Offensive happened, was so shocking because clearly it proved in a matter of a couple of days that the opposite was true. And that just caused a reckoning um, of epic proportions for the Johnson administration as we saw with him deciding not to run again, but also with the public sort of questioning, have we been told the truth? Do we, do, are leaders telling us what's really going on? Do they even know what's really going on? And what does this really mean? And then right after that is this cascade of terrible tragedies of assassination and chaos and unrest, followed by the Democratic Convention and the chaos of that. And I mean, it's just it's a terrible year. We ended up struggling with uh, what to call our episode. On the first half of the year, we ended up with the title is Things Fall Apart. Come from the Yeats poem, which Robert Kennedy had um, invoked, and that sense of just chaos loosed upon the land and the center will not hold, and that definitely is how 1968 felt to us. You were talking about you know, the feeling of that year um, in the earlier 1960s, and there was a great deal of optimism, not just about the war, but culturally and about a lot of other things that were going on um, as well. You talked a little bit about. Tet and how that transitioned um, and, and changed things. Um, how did you talked you in the documentary? You talked to both sides, which I think is um, something that uh, was particularly uh, different and really interesting about taking a look at this period. What was the difference um, that you sensed between U.S. forces, Vietnam combatants? at that critical moment? Well, we learned a lot about the Tet Offensive by speaking to the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong veterans, and also South Vietnamese. So there actually is more than two sides in this epic struggle. There's America, and there's two sides in Vietnam. And then within Vietnam, each of those sides has sides. And our mm. side has pro and against the war. So it was sort of, it's, 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 it's a multifactorial or, you know, Were you surprised tripartite. Or did yes. you go in thinking that, I don't that, think that, that that was going to be I the was, case? You know, I advocated very strongly within our team with Ken Burns and our writer Jeff Ward and Sarah Botson, our producer. I really felt it was essential that we represent Vietnamese perspectives, mm -hmm. that we were going to try to take a new look at the Vietnam War and its meaning for our society. We were not going to make the mistake that Americans always make in thinking about the Vietnam War, which mm -hmm. is it's an American story. Hmm. It's not. I mean, it's partly, but it's also epically a Vietnamese story. So that was just starting from day one, but we didn't really know what that meant, to be honest. And there's not a ton of scholarship, and there's not mm -hmm. a lot of available information. You really kind of have to go there and talk to people, which is what I love to do. So that was a privilege. But one thing that many, one, among the many things we discovered about the Tet Offensive was that for the people who were fighting it on the winning side, the communist side, they were told 
It was very last minute, first of all. It was very last minute. It was not well planned out. They were told, this is the last battle. The war will be over. Interesting. We, will ride, we, will, we, will, we will attack all over South Vietnam, and the local people will rise up to support us, and the war will be over. The South Vietnamese government will collapse, and the Americans will go home. Mm -hmm. And so people basically left behind in the jungle their extra equipment. They got new uniforms to wear when they took over. They had new money printed. There was a whole kind of fantasy of what was going to happen. So they had their own reckoning to do afterwards. It didn't turn out the way they planned at all. So that was very interesting to see. There was a lot of disappointment because they suffered tremendous losses, enormous losses. And yet, paradoxically, it was a victory for them because the war is not only a military struggle, it's a political struggle. But that's so interesting is that we were both, both sides, I don't know, yes. there's many sides, but so yes. on the American side, we're being told by our administration, things are going great, led the end uh -huh. of the tunnel. Right. Not true. The, the, economy, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, are being told this is the last battle. Americans are going home after uh -huh. this. Everybody was being lied to by their leaders. Indeed. How is it that the North Vietnamese ended up losing the battle but winning the war because of Tet? And yeah. not just because of Ted, but Ted is this turning point. Yes. How is that? How did that happen? There are a number of reasons uh, for that, um, and one of them is that they had some advantages that we did not have. They had a leader that they believed in and that had mm -hmm. sort of hmm. ultimate loyalty, Ho Chi Minh. As it turns out, he was actually not directing policy in North Vietnam at that time. He had been sort of pushed out of power mm -hmm. by another yeah. guy named Le Zuan, who was much more aggressive and much more um, militaristic in a way. And so Ho Chi Minh was actually not in favor of the Tet Offensive mm. and thought it was a bad idea. He thought they should just keep going on this low-grade guerrilla war, and over time, they would wear us down. And Le Zuan wanted this big, epic battle to get it over with. And so Ho Chi Minh was basically out of the country mm. when they were planning it, and he wasn't really allowed to come back. But afterwards, everyone embraced it because it was, worked out so well politically. So um, anyway, but the, the point is that in North Vietnam and on the communist side, Ho Chi Minh was a leader that people believed in. And he represented something about the spirit of the people, a nationalist impulse and sort of self-determination. So South Vietnam did not have that. And it's really a battle between South Vietnam and North Vietnam, ultimately. So uh, that was a card that they could play over and over again. They had also a determination among their leadership that they didn't care how many battles they lost they would keep fighting until they went home. How did they, how did North, the, the people you talked to, the soldiers you talked to, how did they come out of that feeling like they were winners when they had lost so many people? And when the goal was, well, the, the, end, the end game was, we're gonna win, the Americans are gonna go home. The Americans didn't go home. They lost right. so many people, yet they have more, higher morale at the end of that than we did. How, how does that happen? Well, Is it just Ho Chi Minh? No, it's not just Ho Chi Minh. There's a nationalist impulse you know, there's kind of a sense, one of our interviewees said this the other day to me, I thought it was beautifully said, there was a sense we had manifest destiny when we Americans felt we had the right to overspread the continent and take it over, and it was our destiny, our right. The Vietnamese ultimately felt they had manifest destiny to unify their country. Hmm. So if you just put, you know, and you, it raises questions about counterinsurgency and how long is it to be sustained, and ultimately what really comes into play is what is at stake for the American people? What are we fighting and dying and killing for? And if the public, the government couldn't really explain after a while what it was for or justify that, and then you lose public support. 
So ultimately, without public support, you can't sustain a counterinsurgency halfway around the world. Whereas they, in North Vietnam, never really lost public support. Now, they also had total control of their media. So there was not an open free press. So they weren't actually getting information about the losses, mm. how many people died. They have no idea. These, their sons went off to the south, and they never came back. They were gone for the duration. So they didn't find out till the end of the war if they were still alive. Mm. So there was no room for protest or uh, uh, you know, um, disapproval within the context of North Vietnam. So there's a lot of complicated dynamics going complicated. on. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think you can ultimately say that you know, what was at stake for America and Americans by the time of 68 was not wanting to be the first president to lose a war. <laughs> And how many Americans are going to go over and die for that? Mm -hmm. Or how many mothers are willing to lose a son for that? And we're trying to help the Vietnamese people, but in the context of that, a lot of them are getting killed. Civilians, mothers, women, children, old people, in our attempt to win the war for them, civilians are bearing the brunt of the, kill, of the, of the destruction. So it becomes extraordinarily complicated for American leadership to justify to the American people what the war is for. And once that got so murky, and there was no end in sight, it's sort of unsustainable. Yeah. The people you interviewed, the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong people who you interviewed now, how are they looking back uh -huh. at what they experienced? Yeah. And are they seeing it in any way differently than what they felt at the time? Yes. I think the answer to that, which is one of the most surprising, interesting things yeah. for us, was absolutely the answer is yes. And in fact, at the end of the film, we have an interview with a man named Win Knopp. He's in his 80s. He fought against the French, and then he fought the Americans. And he helped write the songs that motivated the troops to go to the South and to sacrifice for this great cause. And he, looking back, um, he says, you know, Vietnam is more divided now than it has ever been. So the country was unified politically, but culturally and beneath the surface, the divisions between North and South, winning and losing, are very deep and have never been reconciled. And he said, you know, we are just now beginning to ask the questions, was it worth it? Hmm. Did we, could we have It's achieved? the same questions, we, I mean, exactly. again, Could the we have achieved justice incredible. some other way? Was yeah. this the only way we could have achieved what we wanted, which was to unify our country? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was asked, was it a civil war or a war of national liberation? And he said, you know, I don't know. I ask myself that question every day. So I think, you know, I'm not saying everyone in Vietnam is reckoning, but I think our film has actually been shown in Vietnam. We had the whole film translated into Vietnamese. So you can watch, you could watch it on the PBS site, streaming in English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. And we let it be unblocked in Vietnam, and we've had several million people streamed it in Vietnam. And they're having some interesting conversations about just what we're saying. So, but there's also tremendous pride in having won the war but a lot of bitterness and questioning about the kind of casualties that they sustain because there's a million dead North Vietnamese soldiers of whom 300,000 are missing. And then there's two million, three million altogether, approximately Vietnamese out of a total population of 30 million. So it's, it's quite a reckoning that has never really happened there. So. And you talk in the documentary about the fact that there is no single truth yeah. Um, about the war. And I'm getting a sense that there's no single truth on either side. Mm -hmm. um, I know that as part of the goal of the documentary, do you want us to come to some kind of truth about the war? Or is it just, is just to have a conversation about it 
enough? Well, I hope that we made a film that leaves some questions, as Ken was saying in the trailer that we showed, that we don't want to connect all the dots for the audience, mm -hmm. and that we don't have experts appearing on camera to interpret everything for you, because we trust our audience to experience this epic story and hear from many different points of view, and then come to your own conclusions. That being said, you know, we do get asked a lot of you, what's your argument? When we're making the film, people, what's your argument? We're not trying to make an argument. You know, we're actually trying to find out what actually happened, which is so complicated, as we just were saying. We just talked about Tet Offensive, but every aspect of the war is equally complicated. Um, and recognize that you can't ever fully know the truth about anything, honestly, because it's, it's a moving target. New scholarship comes up, new people tell their story. What's happening now affects how we see the past. That being said, I think there are lessons that we could talk about that are really, really important. And we, again, we don't, you know, point, we don't stick a pin in them, mm -hmm. but we think about them a lot. And one of them is, one of the things that I find the most devastating about this story, which I found wrenching and, and devastating on many levels, was sort of the lack of accountability mm -hmm. on the part of leaders in Vietnam and in the US to take responsibility, to admit they made mistakes, to understand what they're doing, to make good decisions, to be mindful of the, you know, the cost of what they're saying and doing, to be honest with the people that are willing to sacrifice for them. You just, over and over again, you hear private conversations among leaders. Not in Vietnam, we don't have access to their private conversations, but here we have these incredible tapes yeah. of Johnson, Kennedy, and Nixon, you know, saying what they really think, yeah. And then you hear them, you see them go out in front of the TV cameras and say basically the exact opposite. And so that sense that we, as a, you know, that we, our leaders should be accountable and they should tell us the truth, yeah. that seems And that important. sort of damaged the institutions. It damaged the institutions and, and our yeah. faith in ourselves and them. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that year when, when we, as pollsters, look at the faith in institutions question, uh -huh. which has been asked a lot recently for yes. a whole variety of reasons. Uh, but we go back to 1968 where Gallup was doing these, and that's where you begin to see this fall off, and then through Watergate and everything else, this was kind of the beginning of the end of Americans' faith in institutions, not just government, no. but religious institutions, corporations, the media, the judiciary even. Absolutely. Um, and it's, so it's interesting when you talk about that, that, that breaking point where we try and reconcile that. We haven't come close to reconciling that. In fact, we're living... I mean, it's more poignant today almost than it was then. I agree. It's, it's very worrisome because, um, you know, on the one hand, I could say to myself, look, you know, people have told us they thought John Kennedy was a god. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before this lack of, this loss of, this disillusionment, loss of faith, there are people growing up who would do anything for this leader who they thought was a god. Mm -hmm. Well, we know he's not a god. Right, so it's not healthy to think that our president is a god. Mm -hmm. They are real people, they do make mistakes. So we have to be more realistic and maybe skeptical. But by the time you get to Nixon, and you're saying he's a crook and he lied to us and he's you know, only interested in himself, you've gone from skepticism to cynicism. And then it's sort of a screw you, I don't care. Nobody cares about me, I don't care about them. Mm -hmm. And that seems so toxic That's, and terrible. Isn't that where, we, where are? we are? That is where we are. Yeah. We have not gotten back. Somewhere in between there, we lost something that we have not recovered. So does reconciling the Vietnam War, if this was the start of it, yeah. does that help us get over that hump and start to fix that? Well, maybe on some level it, it does. It could. I don't know if it does. 
um, in the sense that we as citizens in a democracy also have a responsibility. We're not children. You know, we, have our, we, hold our, we should hold our leaders accountable. And that's one thing that I think you see through the 60s that has caused a lot of um, dissension or uh, polarization today, but the sense that citizens in a democracy should stand up and protest and speak out and hold our leaders accountable for the reasons we were just saying. And you see that in the civil rights movement, you see it in the anti-war movement, the women's rights movement, the environmental movement. There's a moment in the film where I interviewed a retired, he was a fighter pilot during the war, he became chief of staff of the Air Force, Merrill McPeak. And he said that this was a time of this great foment, you know, unrest, all these protests were happening. And this great rock and roll music was kind of the anthems of that time, this great, brilliant music speaking to the voice of the people. And he said, when I was in Vietnam flying, you know, um, missions, I turned the volume up on all that stuff. And he said, that's what I was fighting to defend. We don't smoke marijuana in Missouri. That was just a portion of the conversation with Lynn Novick. You can watch video of the entire session on the Marist Poll Facebook page, and you can see Lynn's documentaries, including the Vietnam War, via the pbs.org website, or you can watch it on streaming services, including iTunes and Amazon. Next time, we'll be talking with Jeff Greenfield about politics in 1968. Not only a television correspondent, he worked with Bobby Kennedy. And you can watch it live and send in questions as we go by following us on the Marist Poll Facebook page. A huge thanks to Nicolette Strano and the rest of the Marist Poll team for making this session possible. And as always, Poll Hub wouldn't be possible at all without our terrific executive producer, Mary Griffith. Remember, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Marist Poll. And if you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. That's it for now. And we'll see you next time. And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. A place where even squares can have a ball. We still wave old glory down at the courthouse. And white lightning's still the biggest thrill of all.